Welcome back to the Hubscale podcast. This week is a very special episode as it's our 30th episode. This week we have on Stan Golubchik, the co-founder and CEO of ContraForce. I'm really looking forward to diving into a lot of the topics today. Stan, it's great to have you on. Elliot, it's great to be on. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. So I guess for anybody listening who doesn't know Stan, it'd be great to give it a quick introduction to yourself. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. So, um, you know, I've been in the space on the cybersecurity side for about 15 years. Um, you know, ironically enough, I didn't really start on cybersecurity. I was actually more pre-med on the actual education side before going into the space. But I did grow up around IT pretty substantially due to my family and, you know, the exposure there. Um, but got my teeth cut into the cyberspace and IT space, you know, first as a network operator, uh, roughly 15 years ago, a large enterprise. Uh, then I took um, a pathway towards cybersecurity, working at Intel Security um, and McAfee. I was there for almost uh, a little over six years in total, um, doing everything from, you know, security engineering um, to security architecture work, technical marketing engineering. And a few other gigs, so got a lot of great exposure, and then joined a company called Armor before starting ContraForce. Um, so been in the space for that long of a period. And ContraForce, we're a hyper automation platform for security operations, and really our mission is to democratize security operations and making it accessible uh, for security teams and small IT teams alike as well too. Now um, we've been around for almost three years at this point, and we're a venture backed company. Um, and it's been really a great journey. It's been fun and awesome working with customers and partners. And it's awesome to be here, Elliot. Awesome stuff. No, it really is. And it's, uh, I, I was just talking before the podcast. I think these these are really helpful to me because myself being at the early stage and just learning that the stuff that we're probably going to go through today is really, really exciting. So I guess to take me back to the start of ContraForce, um, how did you think of the idea and, and what was the situation? Yeah, so there was actually a few uh, market forces that, you know, I saw early on, um, along with uh, my co-founder. I'll take you back kind of in about 2014, 2015. Um, there was kind of market forces starting to percolate back then when I was in McAfee. Um, the market force that I'm kind of alluding to here goes by the name of Microsoft. You might have heard of those guys. And at the time of McAfee, we were selling um, an endpoint solution. And, you know, it was kind of going and competing against the likes of Silence and CrowdStrike. But then out of nowhere came this big Andrew Pound gorilla called Microsoft, and they started selling in the same space and just started eating everyone's lunch, including us at McAfee. And so their Defender product came in. And what we found out pretty quickly was that this was the inception of Microsoft going to market in the security sector. And when they go into something, they go into it very hard and they go into it fast. So within about two years, um, much of the actual market opportunity that we had at McAfee for the endpoint space was absorbed really quickly like a sponge by Microsoft. And so, you know, that was kind of the first foray that I saw in my experience when you're working as a cyber vendor and security and Microsoft comes in, you know, there's an opportunity for them to disrupt and be able to actually obtain that market share fast. So that was the first piece. Um, well, then I essentially joined a company um, that was doing managed detection response. We had about 1,500 clients, and I saw there was a huge issue there, which was um, being able to actually roll out security operations as a service was not very economical, nor was it scalable in terms of actually delivering the service as it was meant to be delivered. Um, so there was kind of two factors there. The first being um, there was this emergence of a new player in the space. Um, this was a hyperscale cloud provider on with Azure, Microsoft and building a very strong, robust security portfolio. 
Um, so we've, we kind of built a thesis around that first. And the second one was how do we build security operations to make it accessible? Because it's hard because you have to take very complex tools like a SIM, you got to take security automation. That's also difficult as a SOAR. And then you have ticketing platforms, you have data management pipelines, and you have security engineering. So taking all these things and then being able to compile that into one single solution was the goal of ContraForce. And that's why I talk about democratizing security operations. It's taking all these factors that have become commodity products and hard to find service to people and bring into something that is very palatable for even small teams. And so we built that kind of overall application layer with those kind of values on Microsoft initially and really building towards a better you know, overall solution where small teams and even service providers, which we focus on heavy today can use this at scale. So um, I think those were the, really the two big factors that drove our inception of the business strategy and the business concept that we have today. And it's really been paying off honestly, because we had to wait about three years for the market to catch up. And I think it's really catching up fast and you know we're in the right place. Yeah, no, it's super exciting. And um, yeah, I mean, you and I talked before about the next uh, the next few years with with ContraForce as well. So it's going to be really, really exciting what you can you can do as well. And you and I talked before previously um, about kind of a pivot you did. Um, explain that as well. Yeah, no. So we initially, you know, we were pretty bullish of going after a underserviced market, which were small, medium businesses, um, even up to small, medium enterprises. And that's typically defined as, you know, a few thousand employees in an organization. And the reason we wanted to go after that, as you can imagine, is that number one, it's their service. Uh, number two, they just don't have the maturity. Um, and number three, they lack the capability from a skill set and an automation perspective. Um, we found out pretty quickly that there's many reasons, obviously, why a lot of other vendors or providers or just solution offerings in the space haven't gone into that market segment and have done well. Um, it's because it's tough. It's it's really tough, right? You go to a small business, they don't have the people, they don't have the budget, and they don't have the time because you go talk to the key decision maker in a small business, let's say the president or the CEO, they have 300, 300 other things on their list that they have to worry about. And cybersecurity is not in that list, right? So they know about it. They know they should be concerned about it, but there's not enough pressing external variables that's causing them to make a change, right? And, you know, if you can, you know, anything about human psychology, we have to have a place of being extremely uncomfortable to actually invoke change, right? And since that's not happening yet in that space, even though breaches do cause some pain, um, there's an issue. So we noticed that just overall going to that market, it's not yet there where it needs to be in terms of adopting what we're delivering as a value add service and products. Um, I do believe we're going to get there, um, just a matter of time. So what we did notice was that talking to these small businesses, they all had something in common was they were working in some kind of capacity on the peripheral with service providers, right? That could be an MSP, it could be an MSSP, and in some cases, an MDR provider. And so we went to go to the partners and said, hey, you're a provider working with these businesses. It could be small, medium, maybe even enterprise is there better ways to be able to actually deliver a better quality service at scale? And the answer was always yes. And so, you know, as a business offering, I'm delivering managed security services. I'm always looking way, looking at ways to be able to provide better qualitative response outcomes, reduce my bottom line costs, but also scale this out to more customers. And that's really, I think an anchor point because as a provider, my restriction is how many people I have running in my SOC, meaning how many analysts, and how many engineers are supporting these analysts to be able to deliver the service. And typically that is the bottleneck. 
So by being able to be acute on that problem and saying, how do we essentially release that pressure in the bottleneck and open up that pathway for better business outcomes? We found a really strong fit for the providers that we were speaking to. And then the value resonated extremely well. So that was a pivot that we focused on and we did it really rapidly. Um, and I think we were also in a good position to support the pivot because the way that the product was architected in the first place was already kind of predicating on the mindset of we need to do this at scale. So um, the piping was there, the architecture was there. It was, a, it was really about just slightly changing the messaging and the go-to-market strategy to support our thesis, which actually lined up quite nicely for us. Yeah, no, it's super cool. I always um, I always like diving into the, the details of pivoting, um, especially in uh, early stage startups, because you can go either way and you have to be, uh, you can't continue to pivot. So you need to pick, pick something and keep going at it for sure. But no, I, I think it's really interesting. I just want to dive a little bit more detail on there as well. You mentioned obviously changing the go-to-market strategy, which is huge at the early stage as well. So tell me, tell me more about how you changed the go-to-market and, and what were the benefits as well? Yeah, so the change, kind of as you alluded, Elliot, it's um, a pretty heavy lift, right? Um, even as a small company, you're more agile, you can go fast, but you're changing everything from um, product pricing, you're changing messaging, you're changing your sales motion. Um, so there, there's a lot of variables you have to be able to account for. And if you miss one, um, it'll kind of will bite you in the ass a little bit, right? Because you're going to go back into the point and saying, oh, I missed that. And then you kind of missed a long tail opportunity to working with a partner that might've taken you six or 12 months to capture in the first place. Um, so that pivot process, um, we had to work together as a team and everyone had to be on the same page. Um, so that meant a lot of communication internally, being very transparent, uh, but also identifying who is going to be that ideal customer profile. In this case, we identified there were MSSPs and MDR providers, those companies that already have a SOC. Um, but the problem for their, the problem that they were facing was how do I take this service engagement model I have today, meaning 24-7 SOC monitoring response, and take it to the next level. And due to the restraints that they have as a business, we found that to be a repetitive conversation that we could quickly derive the value proposition, get them to the point of saying, okay, I've been looking for this for a while. You guys have it how quickly can we get going? And so then it becomes more or less of how do we embed this or ingrain this in their current process? And that was probably the biggest hurdle, but beyond that, we definitely found, I would say that early product market fit from the nature of talking to them around those problems. And it became really apparent really quickly, to be completely honest. It wasn't, long, it wasn't a long derived conversation. We got to the point of saying, do you have these three challenges? If so, then we're going to get fit. And I think that helped us qualify and make the pivot a lot faster. Yeah, no, no, it's super cool. Super cool. Going through that whole process and mapping everything out. And it sounded like it happened really quickly as well, which is uh, which is great. Sometimes it doesn't, <laughs> it takes a lot longer. Yeah. But that's, yeah, that's, that's right. really, really cool stuff. Um, so just before going on to kind of the next topic, but tell me about where ContraForce is uh, planning to be in the next few years. Yeah, so, you know, um, we've had some really amazing reception over, you know, this this year. Um, the partners that we, we speak with, you know, we, we've realized that there isn't a lot of solutions out there that's really addressing these actual pain points that they're solving for or trying to solve for. Um, so as we're, we're talking with these partners, I think the opportunity is quite massive. Um, we're going to continue focusing on incubating these partners, capturing them and helping them execute against their own business initiatives. 
And, um, you know, we think the market opportunity size there is quite enormous. So we're going to be focusing on that for the next two to three years quite easily. Um, we're going to also be balancing it out with how much organic growth we want to assume versus how much actual inorganic growth we want to assume. On the inorganic side for us, that's obviously capitalization of the business, working through, you know, venture capital. Um, since we're already backed by a VC um, out of our seed round, we're, you know, we're having conversations around our next round here relatively soon. Um, so it's going to be a balancing act, especially now because the market headwinds and the you know, economy is pretty interesting. Um, the spend is being actually still put out there, but it's being put out there very specific and with a lot of high due diligence. So um, the money's there. You just got to know and understand how to capture that. So oh, we're going to be focusing on these very niche partners. Um, and I think that's going to give us very strong top line revenue growth for the next three years. And then we'll expand that market opportunity as we start looking at some other new avenues of go to market. Yeah, no, that's no, super cool. I'm excited to watch from the sidelines as well as you grow. It's uh, it's definitely an exciting journey that you're on. You mentioned um, you mentioned there obviously being backed by an investor and going for some more investment. And one of the topics today is kind of gaining investment, especially right at the early stage. So tell me more about that journey, especially for people listening who maybe are going out there to set up their own business. Just tell tell me some tips and tricks about gaining investment. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so quickly, kind of on our journey, um, you know, we started um, effectively building in early 2021, um, roughly four months after we started, um, we actually were provided um, or accepted into White Combinator. And so we decided to go down that path. Um, we thought it was a really unique opportunity, even though we knew that, you know, White Combinator is not really too in-depth into B2B cybersecurity. Um, they have a few wins there, but ultimately we thought there would be a lot of good outside in view of thinking about how do you build a business, entrepreneurship and startups and raising capital, right? And uh, that held to be true. So when we went through there, you know, we we learned a lot. We had a great exposure of network connectivity. And so that was that was great. Um, one thing I definitely would, you know, just mention is that, you know, going through Y Combinator and seeing all these other companies that get into this hyper growth mode and can get into true unicorn status um, one of the, I would say, biggest points of contention, um, and I think Y Combinator will echo this as well, is that when you're building a company, the hardest thing to probably define is a good co-founder or founder fit. And I think a lot of companies, especially before they really get to even like MVP or PMF, you have to find the right partner who is your co-founder or your co-founders. Once that co-founder fit is found, which is very difficult, you're in a much better opportunity for su success. But I think a lot of companies that start up, they don't actually take into heavy consideration who you're working with. And that starts to actually become into a very problematic situation, 12 to 24 to 36 months down the road. And companies can actually die on the vine if they don't find the right co-founders. Um, and so if anything, definitely as a suggestion, find the right person you're getting into the marriage in a long-term relationship. And if you're not ready to wake up every morning in bed with that person next to you, you probably should reconsider who you're going to go to bed with. So um, I think the marriage component is very important. Find the right co-founder fit. Um, and then early stage, typically investors, they look for more than anything else, they look at the founders. They look at your experience. They look at your overall synergy. Can these other founders working together in this company, do they have the right energy? Do they have you know the right idea? Do they work well together? That's where a lot of the investment value is going to be extrapolated from the founding team. 
then you know you typically look at it from an investor lens and investors say well what's the market opportunity right is it big enough are they approaching this the right way are they thinking about this from a business logic perspective in the right way and then thirdly and this is of course you know up to debate you can reorder these how you want but i think it's more the technology piece uh technology typically can be changed pretty quickly it can be adapted pretty quickly but if you don't have a good team with the right business plan an idea of the market opportunity the technology is not going to really mean anything um, it's kind of the trite saying of, you know, if I build it, they will come. That's not true. You have to make sure first, identify what the problem is. If the problem is actually bad enough, where if you build something, somebody will pay for it. And if that's not the case and you don't have validation in the market, meaning the customer is telling you that this is something that is actually a pain point and challenge, you should go back to the drawing board and think about how do I approach this and actually identify a very acute problem and then start to actually productize it. So start kind of more on the consulting service side and then work your way up in terms of put, putting in actual real R&D spend and resources to get this somewhere into a non-scalable then scalable product. Um, afterwards though, after YC, um, we actually went and got our seed round. We worked with Data Tribe. Um, they've been a great partner as well on the venture side and we've been scaling since then and growing. So. Um, you know, looking at the next round here uh, in the short future. So um, it's been an interesting opportunity and journey, but um, always something to learn along the way for sure. Yeah, no, no, I love it. I love the last point you mentioned about always something to learn. I think you've got to keep your keep your mind open, especially when to go into things like this. And even the first part about getting, getting into bed with the wrong person that can uh, that can be proven proven a disaster as well. So no, honestly, really, really good advice, Dan. Um, and it uh, sounds like you and your co-founder as well have uh, kind of made that marriage and <laughs> going on the journey together. <laughs> yeah, so far, yeah, so far it's been a happy marriage. <laughs> <laughs> That's great to hear. That's great yeah. to hear. Um, so I want to talk about that as well because the journey you've had is um, a really, really interesting one, of course. Obviously, stepping into the, the, the new business, building it from scratch, uh, working with your co-founder and growing it to the team, so I wanted to talk about the the early stage, especially um, as a first time founder. I think a lot of uh, a lot of people are scared to take that leap, and it's a tough leap. Um, a little bit, a lot of people have huge amounts of creativity and everything along those lines, and uh, they probably think of twenty ideas every every year. So tell me how what it's been like as a first time founder. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I I think to your point, Elliot, when people jump into the idea of I'm going to start my own business, my startup, um, the idea, right? The, the illusions of grandeur are quite great because they're like, okay, well, my idea seems unique. It seems novel enough. And I want to go do something. I want to be my own boss. I want to work with the people that I love to work with, you know, whatever your driver is, um, it's all good and great. But when you get to the point of actually getting in the crunch of it and in the trenches, that's where you see a lot of people pull the parachute because the reality is you start the business, the level of uncertainty and experimentation you're going to have to go through is extremely high, right? You're going to have to iterate, fail fast, iterate, fail fast. As much as you can fail fast and be able to identify what not to do again, that's going to put you in a position of failure. And then how to be able to actually iterate where it's a better improvement of what you've learned. That's where you start getting towards a kind of bucket of success, right? But how do you get there? That's That's where you start to kind of identify the people that can be uh, resilient enough and also have the rigor and the velocity to do that. As soon as, you know, we talked about this, as soon as you let off your foot off the pedal, you're going to lose the momentum. And then when that momentum is very difficult to actually keep on going with. 
Um, and that's kind of the biggest thing that I definitely like to just urge people that are first time founders, just don't give up. As soon as you give up and you start either doubting yourself, you start releasing some of that pressure and forward momentum, it's almost like a cascading effect. It's a snowball effect. You're going to lose it all very quickly. So you have to be relentless every single day, waking up with your, your purpose, your passion, hopefully, and just keep pushing forward. Um, even though when it seems like, you know, the mountain is too high to go climb, you can go do it, but it's always one step at a time. Um, if you can keep your head down long enough and you can keep, you know, relentless enough, I think you'll get to your point, or at least you'll figure out pretty quickly if there is even an opportunity. But I, I think that's probably the biggest area where people fall short is they give up too soon. Um, when if they stayed in just a little bit longer, you got to keep in mind, that's the other person over there who made it across the finish line. It's because they stayed ahead and they kept pushing. So just can't let go and you can't let off of that pedal. So as soon as you do, um, yeah, it's, it's going to be very difficult. Yeah. No, no, I, from my previous conversations, I took away from them and uh, took a lot away from them, sorry. And uh, it's always about really driving. And if you get to that point where you feel like giving up, you're probably quite close to something. You just need to push that little bit further. <laughs> right. Oh, absolutely. That's the, yeah, you're onto something, right? And if yeah. you're not, it's fine. It's just like, you got to keep the hunger, right? You got to keep that fire alive. I absolutely do. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I think it's awesome. I really do. And I think that the journey, tell, just tell me more about the specific journey then. Because obviously you, you've got to the point, you, you're pivoting, you're diving into different directions, you're growing the business. And there's so many things that come along with that. But what's kind of your key takeaways? If you had to name three, what would they be? <laughs> uh, key takeaways for kind of building it. Um I definitely would say the first one is to be kind of, you have to think about your, think of yourself as kind of as constant self growth and mindset for growth. And so I would say it's almost relentless, um, the, really it's the pursuit of educating yourself. And to me, it's almost like proving yourself wrong all the time. Because if you go into that position, you have an idea, you have an assumption. I'm going to do X and then I'm going to assume Y outcome. Um, but it's really kind of an experimentation. That's all it is, right? You're taking variable A and then you're combining with variable B and expecting C as an outcome. Well, all you're doing is taking A and B and constantly changing these things around, right? And the C does also change. And for me, I think at least that was a thing that I realized was number one was challenging, uh, but it also helped me push the ball forward, right? Um, for those people out there that always want to challenge, right? You want the you know intellectual uh, stimulation, being able to also kind of always push yourself and better yourself. I think be able to identify what works, what doesn't work, and being able to capture that information and constantly internalizing that. That's the most important part. A lot of times people do not internalize whatever they learned for whatever reason. That could be because maybe it doesn't align with their self-interest or their ego is getting away. Whatever it is, you got to kind of put it aside and understand like, hey, this is my mission. This is what I'm trying to do. And I have more people relying on me just focus on that. And that's the goal that you want to get to. So I think that's kind of the first piece is like that relentless pursuit of just educating yourself and growing. Um, the second piece is that you're going to have so many ups and downs, right? Um, some days you're going to have your peaks. Other days you're going to have your valleys. And literally, you probably, Ellie, I'm sure you've experienced this. Some days it's the peak. And the next day you're like at the bottom of the valley. You're like, wait, what? Like yesterday was the best day that I had, you know, in a few weeks. And now this is the worst day. And it's only been 24 hours. And um, that's just the reality. It's kind of a bipolar nature of the business. And that's just because you only can control so much in your life, especially in your own business, right? So I think the second piece really is just focus on what you can control. Um, you know, too many times we try to look at external variables and say, well, how do I influence that? 
And there might be some capability for you to influence it, but the reality is that you cannot change that, especially when the influence has to be done by the individual who's in charge of that decision, right? You can go talk to that person, you can persuade them, but in the day they're going to make the decision that's best for them. So you have to go back and say, well, intrinsically, how can I work on myself to make myself better in these situations? But also, what can I do to move the ball forward? That's only in my control. So keep it in that realm, because I think too many people look at external variables and they get stressed out because they say, I can't control this. Well, it doesn't matter. You shouldn't control it because you can't control it. So just focus on what you can. And then I think the third, third piece is just understand what your why. And so well, I think too many people, you know, they are focusing on the process, you know, the how, the what, um, but you have to always remind yourself, why are you doing this? Um, and if you don't have a good reason of what your purpose is, you're going to find yourself on very short pathways that end up at a dead end very quickly. Um, when you have a purpose and you can wake yourself, you can wake up every day, remind yourself what the purpose is, you're always going to find the next step in your journey, even when you least expect it. But you have to understand kind of the overall guidance point, right? It's the kind of the saying of, you know, if I asked you, Elliot, where are you going to be in 10 years? And if you were to respond to me, well, I don't know, then one could say you're already there. So ideally understand kind of where you're going to be going as your end goal. You're not going to get there exactly. You're going to get somewhere in that proximity, but that's your purpose. Focus on that and just keep driving towards that. And don't let things deter you or complicate the situation if you can. And more so make sure you don't get distracted because I think one of the biggest factors where startups do fail is the lack of focus. They try to do too much at one given time because they get influenced by too many people outside of their circle. And then they get back and they say, well, I'm doing something wrong. That creates doubt. Or I'm going to change quickly and pivot over here when you haven't even proven out your first thesis or hypothesis. So just be patient and focus on one thing that you know you can do really well and then make sure you can essentially put all your resources in there to solve the customer problem that you're trying to solve. And always keep that purpose in the back of your mind while you're doing that process. Yeah, no, I think that, I think that's awesome. Well, we talked about it uh, last time as well about the lady in the red dress. Uh, she's always there, but try and stay away from her and just focus on exactly what you need to do. <laughs> I think trouble, that, man. She's trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> another, another thing you mentioned there as well, I think that the two of the points and number two and number three, you mentioned the why. And I think that plays a lot into the factor of the peaks and troughs you talk about you go through on a day-to-day -day basis, because if you don't have a solid why you're doing it, the troughs and where you're in the, <laughs> the days which feels like it's, everything's going wrong, then the why really does help with that as well. So I think it's really, really good advice, Stan, and um, appreciate that as well, because it does help me, and even from our previous conversation. So no, really good stuff. So I want to take it into the next level. Uh, one of the last topics is kind of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of the talent and, and the, the attraction piece to businesses. But I'd love to know what's been your kind of challenges and what's been the positives for, for growing the business. Yeah, so, I mean, on the court of talent, I think it's kind of interesting. You know, we have a philosophy here uh, at Contraforce where, you know, we want to make sure that when we bring somebody in, um, obviously it needs to be a culture fit, but more so we want to bring people in that have or have a desire for full autonomy, right? And kind of the way we look at it is kind of from a hierarchical structure where we don't want anyone superseding another person. Of course, we need some of that from like organiz organizational structure, but what we try to do is find people that want to come in and operate against, you know, our overall vision, what we're trying to do as a company, but also allow them to have autonomy in what they're doing, Right. So what we'll do is we'll identify people that have strengths that balance our weakness. And we have to first identify the weakness, right? So if you can't write down 10 things that you need to work on, 
you know, you probably should start doing that today because I guarantee there's 10 things you can work on. Everyone can work on something. No one's perfect. But when we find somebody, we try to identify through kind of that law of attraction saying, where are the strengths that will balance us? And then we bring them in. Now, that being said, um, that philosophy, if you may, it's a lot easier said than done because you still have to find people. And it's very hard to find people, especially when you have uh, overall environment where you don't have the people in the first place and then you have a huge knowledge gap, right? And so um, I think it's also being a little bit exacerbated, not to digress too much, but with AI and a lot of the things that are now being more commoditized from an intelligence perspective, I think we're going to see some interesting dynamic shift in the market and love to definitely get your thoughts on that in the future. But um, the talent piece, yeah, you, you need to find people that have, I think, strong trust relationships in their network who can obviously reach out and identify the talent that you need that fits your culture needs, you know, fits your operational needs and then fits your overall business needs. Um, and that's, that's one reason, you know, I definitely reached out to you initially, right? Because that's somewhere we need help with. And so going to experts, that know how to solve for that puzzle and find the right piece is, I think is still big need for us. And I think other companies. So, um, even though, you know, I think being able to have some attraction because you're kind of a shiny new startup, right. Is good and all, but it's more of what are you really trying to solve where that will actually attract people. So, I think that mission and vision that we have and the way we're approaching it, where it's a little, or I would say very unconventional, gets people interested. And um, that's kind of more so staying true to who you are. And so I, I think that definitely has some laws of attraction and bringing people in that are very high up in the talent, uh, the talent uh, totem pole, if you may. Yeah. No, I think it's, it's really good advice as well. And I think that the culture piece is always big. And I think having that autonomy um, really does attract the right people, even even in my small business here, where we're always going after that and are trying to attract the right people. It's funny because when you're hiring in recruitment, it's actually harder than hiring for, hiring for, a, <laughs> for, for a vendor. So we're going through all that process now. But I guess, um, no, I, I love it. And I think uh, the startup world and attracting the pieces, you have to build that together as well. Even for a search firm like mine and um, partnering with you, you have to come and build that together, which is which is really, really key. So I think it's exciting, exciting times ahead. But look, Stan, I think it's awesome. And I, I always leave with one of these questions, uh, which is it's kind of a selfish question because I like to learn a lot of this as well. But so what would you do differently if you had to start Contra Force again, if anything? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would probably say... And this is probably more from a personal side because it's, I don't think it's been a strength of mine, which is patience. Um, I probably would tell myself to be more patient. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that's the biggest thing. You know, it's when we're not patient, we make changes too abruptly. Um, and we put a lot less thought into it and being thoughtful, um, empathetic, and then being just, you know, allowing yourself to wait to see things kind of incubate and kind of come to fruition. It takes time, Right. Um, and you're kind of fighting against the forces of like startup scale, right? You're trying to go fast as possible. Um, but fast does not always mean quality. It does not always mean success, right? A lot of times it does, but you have to kind of balance that out. You have to make sure that you're doing things the right way while trying to do it as fast as possible. But somewhere in between, you have to have a balance of when I should be patient. Um, and then more so, it definitely reaches back out to working with the people around you. So I think patience comes to a virtue of relationships that you manage. So I probably would set, probably tell myself to be more patient across all these different aspects of the business because I think it would probably be a lot more valuable 
not even the short term, but also the long term in terms of establishing uh, more consistent business value, um, better relationships, um, and probably even better product, to be honest, in some ways, in terms of identifying what could have been improved. And so, yeah, I, that's probably something I would go tell myself. Um, I still probably remind myself on a weekly basis, just, you know, take a breath, be patient. <laughs> so it's it's still a work in progress. <laughs> I think it always has to be a work in progress. I, I think that the problem is sometimes people um, kind of want change overnight and things like that, but everything's yeah. a work in progress. And if you take your time and try and be patient as possible, I suffer from that as well, by the way. So. <laughs> um, but no, honestly, really, really thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a great episode. We got a lot out of it. Um, again, I've learned a lot from, from our conversation. So really appreciate you, Stan. Everybody go check out Contraforce. Uh, they're going to do some amazing things over the coming years. So go check them out. And Stan, thank you very much for coming on. No, Elliot, thanks so much. Always a pleasure talking with you, man. Appreciate it. Thank you very much.